The end of the year is fast approaching, and this year the Cood Street Podcast is doing something a little different. We're inviting 24 creators of some of this year's best and most interesting books to join us for 10 minutes or so to talk about what they're reading now, their favorite holiday reads, what they had out this year, and what they've got coming out in the year ahead. It's a Cood Street Podcast podcast advent calendar, if that's your kind of thing, or it's just a run-up to the holidays for book lovers. Today, I'm joined by the fabulous and wonderful Alexi Harrow. Hello, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. It is an absolute joy. How have you been? How's, how are these latter days of the, the pandemic treating you and yours? Oh, isn't that just the era that we are in now? It's pretty good. I would say having a kid in pre-K is sort of just like a fun bingo game where every week you're like, is this time at COVID? Have we finally yeah. fallen? But somehow we have not. I think we've gotten every strain of every other thing possible in the <laughs> nation, but we have not yet gotten COVID. <laughs> uh, well, at least you haven't sort of, you're not quite ready to diminish and go into the West. There's at least that, which after the, it feels like after, well, not after, but wherever we are in the pandemic, it feels like, like we almost can. And, and, and you sort of, when we last spoke, maybe on the podcast, we we were talking about the pandemic and how it affects how you encounter things. Is this sort of hazy, weird period feeling like it's like it's ending for you? Is it, are things getting clearer? Are you able? Are you functioning and reading and everything else, or is or is it just that ongoing haze of of everything? I would say that things are getting a little bit clearer, a little bit easier. Partly that's having the kids, two kids in school sure. now, which is a different world. I also would say that the collapse of Twitter has just been wildly beneficial for my mental health. Um, <laughs> uh, and I don't mean to, it's not amazing that a fascist billionaire billionaire has like bought one of the largest social platforms and is using it as his personal playground. Like there's not a lot of silver linings there. Yeah. However, Twitter was doing me incalculable damage every day. <laughs> and so it has been something of a relief to be like, oh, it's over. I feel like uh, Ben Affleck at the end of Goodwill Hunting, <laughs> when he okay. realizes that Will is gone and is free of that place. Like, I'm like, oh, it's happening. Um, which is a joke <laughs> I stole from a tweet that I saw. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, and this is the thing, it's like Twitter was always has been. I mean, it feels like always was because as you're right, it feels like these are sort of the the end times for that service kind of thing. Um it, it also did good, you know. It, it, it was a, a great I mean, we started interacting. The, you know, the, the, the cusp of what we did came out of Twitter kind of thing. And that's what I actually will miss because a friend was just asking me, like, are you going to Mastodon? And you're going like I went and I looked at Mastodon, but what I want is Twitter without the madness. I want mm -hmm. that easy kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And the fact that like everybody, not everybody, a lot of the people you want to talk to are there and it's just mm -hmm. spontaneous and easy. And that seems to be, that will be a real loss in some ways, though time will come know. back to I you. already miss it terribly, but I, I am grateful for the time, attention span and lack of existential dread that I've been <laughs> experiencing. <laughs> uh, and look, we always knew that the, that the billionaires weren't great, but this is just the most obvious example in a while, you know? Mm -hmm. They usually have more active PR teams between them and us so that they can maintain some sort of fiction that they're functioning in normal humans. And this is without that screen. It's just really terrifying. It's very, it is terrifying. And there's also this thing where it's very hard to maintain the, you know, the lone billionaire as genius argument when you see them being such a bumbling idiot in public, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, to, Mm -hmm. ah, ah, anyway, so let me ask you, we're surviving the hate death of Twitter and everything else. 
The year is coming to its conclusion. Have you been reading? It seems to me like when I saw you on the Twitter, you were like, I read this great book, I read this great book. <laughs> well, that was partly because one of the few like uh, things that won't backfire on you on Twitter is to be like, here's a book that I read that I liked. Sure. Um, <laughs> but I have been reading a lot. Uh, most of it is kind of new upcoming stuff, but I did kind of go back and find this wonderful anthology sword stone table um old legends new voices which is all arthurian stories retold they're you know queer marginalized voices and it's just really brilliant and interesting and i've owned it for a long time but i've only actually started digging through the stories in the last couple of weeks and it's beautiful yeah my very favorite book of the year maybe um was supposed to be in that anthology i know spear nicola Griffith. Yeah. yes yes Yes, that's actually, I read Spear and I loved it. I just became my personality for like a month. I loved it so much that I was like reading all her interviews about it um, and realized that it was originally pitched as a short story that grew out of her control um, beautifully, thankfully, um, yeah. for this anthology. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to return and read those. And it's been really satisfying. But yeah, I've, I've sunk fairly deep into Arthuriana and mythic knight stories in general. Ah. It's interesting how, I mean, I was talking, when I was talking to, for this series of conversations, Christopher Rowe, it's interesting how that kind of deep dive then goes on and influences what you yourself are doing in some way or another, perhaps unexpectedly, you know, you look back later and go, oh, I was reading Spear and, and, you know, Swordstone Table, and now I've done this kind of thing. Is that something that's happened to you in the past? Is that kind of the thing that you think is happening now? Yeah. And I feel like I didn't used to realize that it was happening. Like I would mm. just be sort of consuming things and be like, I don't know why I'm on this huge kick or whatever. And then only after I wrote the short story, the book or whatever, would I look back and be like, oh, that's very much like if you <laughs> poured all of these things into a box and shook it for a while, this is what you would get. And I, I definitely think that like, uh, I'm not a person who has some sort of prodigious and incredible like imagination. I am definitely just like a I have plagiarized from so many sources, you'll never catch me and I'll get away with it sort of a creator. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so like I, the input and the reading is like critical. To <laughs> <laughs> so you've read Swordstone Table. You'd recommend it to the world at large. All links out there. Um, we were touching for a moment on Twitter uh, and it, it does sort of segue into sort of where we're going in the conversation. Um, tell us about, you know, what you had out this year, because there's a smattering of short stories and you had a book. I did have a book. You say that so like, and I think, have I heard you had a book as if you did not edit that book? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I had A Mirror Mended, the second of the two fairy tale retelling novellas that you mm -hmm. wonderfully edited, came out in June. Um, and that one was, the first one was Multiverse Sleeping Beauty, and this one was Multiverse Snow White. And it was mm -hmm. really, really, really fun to work on. And it's been very enjoyable to see people read because when you put ridiculous, stupid meme references in your book, you're given <laughs> the gift and the delight of seeing people on social media be like, oh my God, and they have to tag you in it. And that's been really delightful. That is. And there must be a thing, I mean, it, it felt when I was reading it like so... So intensely of its moment. <laughs> have, have you wondered about how it will age? I have a little bit. Um, I refer, as I often do, to the words of smarter people than me. I was reading a Tamsin Muir interview because 
her books are full of memes and references to a very specific sort of hyper online subculture between I'm going to call it like 2008 and 2015. I would say yeah. that is the cultural band of Tumblr that she is speaking to. Um, and so it's a reasonable question to be like, is any of that material going to like withstand the test of time? Like, how is that going mm-hmm. to age? And I loved her response was just pretty much that every book, even the ones that we now think of as classics, are just riddled with commentary on there now. Mm-hmm. And the book has to stand without that, even as those references fade. But yeah. like each book is naturally of its time. And so it's it's yeah. kind of like in this idea that it is a cultural snapshot, I kind of like that, like, of course, it's going to age, whether it ages poorly or not, is whether the book is decent or not, which is actually separate from how many little pop culture references you worked in. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean, this may be a reader's question to a writer, but do you find as you move on to other things, as you naturally do, that you miss the characters that you've created in the past? Times. Sometimes. And more often what I find is them leaking into a current draft because you finally yeah. got the voice right or you finally figured out like what their whole deal is. And then you're right. You're trying to invent new people and you realize you're like, damn, that is actually just her again. <laughs> like you, <laughs> You've stolen this person that you figured out and she's reappearing and you're like, all right, I have to actually work and figure out who would be in this story meaningfully. <laughs> so is there a point where you've like, you've finished the once and future, which is, and you have to unwrite that into what you're doing next. So it's not just the same thing because that's not what you're trying to do. Yeah, I find my default is <laughs> that often happens to me with plots. And I yeah. think it's just because I, I, I'm i not that inventive of a plot person. And, and so I just have these things that worked once for me. So like, at one point, I was talking to my husband about this next book idea I have. And I was like, it's gonna be like this, this and this. And he was like, so you're telling me a lonely person finds a book. And I was like, oh, come on, <laughs> which is true. <laughs> he was like, that's every book you've written. <laughs> but then, I mean, to some degree, isn't that our lives as readers as well? I mean, come on. Yeah, the, the ultimate, I suppose, may be Mary's. Um, so you have a mirror mended uh, out in the world. I know you've got a new short story that's just come out on Amazon, which is a really, really interesting to have happen. Yeah, how, funny how, how that, that you should mention terrible billionaires. Um, I'm going to assume the Amazon publishing team isn't listening to this. Uh, Apologies if they are. No, uh, it's an Amazon original, and they've been doing some of these. Mm. And I, they've where they do sort of themed small collections of just like six stories or whatever. So this one was Into Shadow, which is just loosely up for interpretation, and and I took it as an opportunity to something to do something a little bit darker. Yeah, uh, an ickier than I normally would um, than maybe is my brand so far, if I have a brand. Um, so the other authors were Tamsin Muir, Love Grossman, the Garthnicks, Veronica Henry. Uh, I'm sorry, I I can't just like normally say his name. Uh, I very vividly remember being in seventh grade and more or less forcing my language arts teacher to read Shade's Children, one of his early <laughs> super disturbing young adult dystopians to the whole class. I was like, this has to be our next classroom pick. And she read the whole thing out loud, which is incredibly like baller of her because it's an outrageous book. Anyway, Garth Nix, uh, Tommy Champion, Eta Yemi. Anyway, it's a really cool lineup and it's... it's- longer side of short stories so i think they're all like the shortest ones like seven thousand words or something 
um, something in that range. And it's coming out in Audible and free for Amazon Prime members, yeah, but yeah, $2 yeah, for right. everybody else, I believe is their model. And I'm I'm curious to see how it works yeah. or like if that is read by any of the audiences that consume sci-fi short fiction, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'm, I'm kind of curious for for, for, for for no great reason I can get. Where, where does your fangirldom for the great Gar- the Garthniks originate? Oh. oh, I mean, I think the first one, I'm trying to remember if there was anyone before it. There might have been a couple before it, but I don't remember them as well. It's obviously Sabriel. Like that yeah. hit me so incredibly hard in like sixth grade i want to say which was yeah. right when i was also hitting the robin mckinley sword girls and the um sure, sure. tamora pierce like it was just all of a piece but i just that one sort of stood out for being bordering on horror for a very yeah. young audience in a way that was just like totally compelling and interesting to me for somebody who was so steeped in like particularly like 19th century um moralizing children's fiction and was yeah, yeah. veering into the fairy tale retellings and stuff. And I hit Sabriel and was like, oh my God, she's fighting reanimated skeletons. Like, this is <laughs> so incredible. <laughs> so let me ask you this. Are, are you a sucker for beautiful editions of books? I am. I am, yes. You've mentioned Tamsin Muir several times. Have you seen, I mean, Tommy Arnold did the covers for her books for Tor, such beautiful versions. Have you seen the Tommy Arnold Sabriel? Oh, yes. Only recently, though. Someone sent it to me, and it was incredible. The, the, for the, in that Illuminate Crite edition or whatever, or the thingy edition yeah. came out. Yeah, which yeah. I believe was sold out by the time I saw that it existed, but it's gorgeous. Yes. It is. It's quite no, remarkable. I love it. Right? Um, yeah. And of course, I mean, the, the other thing is, I think it's possible the Garth Nix listens to this podcast. Oh, gosh. <laughs> anyway, so, okay. What have you got coming out, Alex? Have you been working or have you just been enjoying you know, having moved to a new place? Oh, I've been working. Um, so the book that will come out next, I'm so sorry, will come out next Halloween. It is <laughs> Starling House. Uh, and I've mm-hmm. Have you perhaps read it? Are you familiar? I, I, I might have read Starling House. Yes. I might have been, I might have been fortunate enough to have that. I mean, it's, it's a really weird thing to have happened, you know, because you realize, and this may actually be where we've got a, a, a similar step in things. Because I've read it, right, the, the 2023 Alexi Harrow book, like, I'm now waiting till 2024 for now or beyond <laughs> or something. Because it's like, this book, like, I read it a, some months ago now, right? So it's like, yeah. isn't that like over and done? But I yeah. mean, you're you're to some degree still in the thick of it, just got to get produced and everything else. Yeah. What can you tell people at the moment about this book other than it has a engaging title? <laughs> um, so this is, I think it was saved in my draft folder as Southern Gothic Beauty and the Beast for a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's very, it's contemporary, which is my first full length book that is in our actual world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's much more rooted in sort of like sometimes eerily close to actual places and lives that I've lived, like in okay. Kentucky. So it's also when I say Southern Gothic, I feel like I need to caveat that and say it's Kentucky Gothic. Like if you actually know the region, it's like a very much more specific thing. Um and it's my house book. And I love house books. I have always loved house books and not just the <laughs> spooky ones. I love spooky house books, you know, okay. the Anytime there's a woman dressed in white running from a bad house in the background on the cover, I do love that. Obviously, yeah. that's its own whole genre. I love that. But I also just feel like there was a whole 
kind of like that Dana Wynn Jones Howl's Moving Castle version of a animate sentient mm-hmm. house that is not necessarily malevolent. Um, and I think those two things have sort of fused in this book. So I'm a little yep. worried about it coming out on Halloween and me being like, oh, it's Southern Gothic. Oh, there's a bad house in it. I'm worried that people will be going and expecting Hill House <laughs> and, be, and sort of over time be like, now, hold on a minute. Is this haunted house just kind of like their little buddy? <laughs> yeah, kind of it is. Ah, <laughs> oh, but I mean, it's still, still. And, and I, I suppose that means that sort of with, with the house book done, having done your portal slash door book and whatever else, um, do you, how do you, how do you feel once you've got that book? I mean, you've, you've now had the experience where you know you f- you finished January, you finished Witches, you d- you did the novellas, you you know done this novel. I mean, on one hand, you can do this thing, but I mean, is there like a, a period after that where you're going, what am I going to do? Where you're sort of lost with uh, for a, for a ways? Yeah, I'm a total monster when I turn into a book. <laughs> when I turn into a book, like, like I feel like each time I rediscover it anew, and I am like, you know, just laying on the floor, like I don't have any other ideas. I'll never have another idea. I don't even know how good that last one was. I'm just, I am flat. I am nothing. And I feel like my husband is like, oh, we're here again. All right, I'll just be back in a couple. Of weeks. Yes. This is going to be a thing ongoing, is it? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it just takes me a while. I'm also just not one of those writers who is a person who has sort of like multiple ideas lined up and sort of waiting yeah. in the wings. Like I am pretty much all in on the thing that I'm doing. And I had yeah. to struggle to really invest in any idea beyond that. So there's this period of like, well, I finished the thing. What yeah. next? Where I just feel yeah. panic for a while and anxiety. Um, I'm through I'm through that. I am now writing the next thing. So I'm, sure. I'm slowly climbing back up out of that hole. <laughs> and I mean, we touched on the, the Amazon story and everything. Where, where does short fiction sit into this cycle for you? Because obviously you've got this deep investment in, and novels are obviously absolutely never having written one, are obviously deeply immersive th- things that consume your intention and everything else. How does short fiction fit into this for you? It actually often comes in those periods in between having a really like yeah. your next novel yeah. idea. And it's and that's one of the just the cool things about genres that like if you have an idea that is not the correct scale for a novel, you don't have to sure. let it die or try to stretch it out. Like I love being like, Oh, I'm really into this idea and then you just kinda of mess with it a little bit and you're like, It's definitely not a book. But you get to keep playing with it and I really appreciate having outlets the way that uh, sci-fi and fantasy does for that. When do you know, when do you get a feeling for the kind of length that the story has? Because, I mean, January, Witches, the novellas, Starling House, they're all, I mean, I mean, Starling House is kind of about the same sort of length, roughly, as January, I think, in my mind. Mm-hmm. Having mm-hmm. not seen a physical copy of it. But obviously, Witches is very different, and then the novellas are very different again. When do you yeah. get that feeling for it? Um, fairly early, I think only because I, as you know, I'm a synopsis person. (laughs) I write a very, it's beyond an outline. It's it's outline plus. And I have like pretty much, and I may be wrong, but I often am wrong about it. But like every scene, the chapter breaks, like I know where it is early on. And in that process is when I'm fully sure how long it's going to be. Um, and it does seem to come down to like how many significant like choices, like turning point choices. Sure are going to be in that plot for this. Like if I am, if I have starting point A and starting point B, how many like pivotal things are there? And yeah. short stories, you get one, you really get yeah. one choice like that matters. Um, sure, sure. 
And I really enjoyed writing the novellas because like it, they could just be the leanest possible version of that story. Like mm-hmm. it was so fun to not, um, to never feel like you're wasting the reader's time, you know, like I have point A and point B and I'm going to get you there like pretty quickly. There's a sure, couple sure. of like failures in the middle, but I just, I loved that efficiency. Um, I'm genuinely, I always have to say genuinely not fishing when I say this, but is it a form you're attracted to go back to? <laughs> yeah. It's genuinely no, it not, absolutely no, not, 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 not. no yeah. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I liked, I did think that it would be more, that I would be faster at it, like I am with short stories. <laughs> but definitely the amount of research and planning ahead of time was more similar to a novel. You know, like sure, sure, it's not yeah. so short that you can skate through on your like, yes. what decisions you're making about the world and stuff. You really do need to know what you're doing. Um, but I, yes. I really enjoyed it. Because, I mean, obviously, you know, your approach to like a novella is not like the approach I was told Sean and Maguire's was to her Wayward Children novellas, where apparently when she wrote the first one, it went from idea to final draft inside two weeks. Oh, see, that's painful to hear. I mean, God bless. I like, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we'll edit that part out. We'll pretend it didn't yeah. happen. <laughs> well, look, uh, I know that as we record, as opposed to when this comes out, you have Thanksgiving between now and the holiday season. But let me ask, when the holiday season comes around, do you have a favorite holiday story or a, f- a favorite holiday book that you find yourself coming back to again? I'm not really a holiday story person. I mean, I do think... Connie Willis will never talk to you again. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Uh, I I like, you know, the Little Women movie around Christmas, and that's about yep. it. Like, I don't have a lot of um, invested in that for whatever reason. I mean, Fair it's enough. more so now associated with, like, my kids and what, like, picture books mm. we get back out and read again. But, um, but I, I can tell you... Yeah. A book that's coming out next year that I'm very excited about. Sure, no, please. Let's do I that. Tell us about a book. I have such a long list of ones that I was like, and maybe I can fit this one in here too. And then maybe. <laughs> okay, this is your chance. Uh, tell us all about it. Al. Let me tell you about the good word of Emily Tesh's debut novel, Some Desperate oh. Glory. It is mm-hmm. fantastic. And she's the author of Silver in the Wood and. I forget the second title, the two novellas from tour.com that were just very lovely, Mm -hmm. sort of had an English folklore vibe. And I very much expected her debut novel to be like in the same vein or at least tonally similar. And it is a wild departure. It is a huge sprawling space opera um, with just gigantic stakes. And I, I've just become completely, I've read it twice now, actually. (laughs) Wow. That's that's, that's quite a, I am a huge rereader just in general, but I am a person who deeply imprinted on Bujold's Borkosigan saga. Okay. And this has some similar bones. I am like, oh, okay. I can tell that Tesh has also read that. And she has. I was right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, it's a little hard to talk about without spoiling. Sure. But it is a young person who believes herself to be sort of the hero, the last hero of humanity, who's going to get revenge for the death of earth. And it's this classic epic sci-fi story and about like, Oh, I don't know. 10% in you realize absolutely all of that is bullshit and a lie. And she is effectively a terrorist. Oh God! And then the rest of the arc of the book is basically de-radicalization. And I just found it a unique plot. I found it sort of this perfect balance between this very pacey thrillery kind of thing and like morally complex, high concept, big sci-fi ideas. And it's just kind of the perfect space offer to me. 
Are you ever tempted to write that stuff? If you're if you're a bougie old person, I've never ever tried sci-fi. <laughs> Why not? It's just a thing. I know. I just feel like I. I would reach for the vocabulary and it not be there. Like it turns out as I'm reading those things, all the technological and world building parts, I am just, they are going in my brain and out of it instantly. <laughs> I'm retaining none of that. <laughs> but I mean, the, the, I mean, maybe the, herein lies the true difference. It's a whole separate conversation between hard science fiction and space opera. In hard mm. science fiction, you need to understand that stuff. It's like, Oh my God! Do you ever? I don't know if you ever read *Cryptonomicon* by Neil Stevenson, but there's an opening section where he's talking about. Make, he makes a lengthy mathematics joke about the turning of a bicycle wheel that even now I don't understand. Right. Whereas space opera, to me, to some degree, the the essence of the science of the science in the science fiction is things go whoosh. Right. That's it. <laughs> That's my understanding. That's my level of understanding of it. Also, yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Well, we shall we shall definitely point people towards some desperate glory, and and, and do you wish the chance to to rave, rant about something or to tell us about something else, or is is that is okay? That I do have one more. I do have one more. Just because okay, course, I've already please. mentioned, just because I've already mentioned Hell's Moving Castle, and I just for the full breadth of what I have loved this year, um, H. G. Perry, who did uh, the Unlikely Escape of Uriah Heep and yes. a couple of historical fantasy novels that I thought were really good. Her newest one is called The Magician's Daughter. And it is just yeah. like weaponized nostalgia. Like it is for me personally, like, um, and H.G. Perry is, I believe, um, a professor of English literature, especially in the 19th century. So like, there's a reason this speaks specifically to me, but mm -hmm, it's, mm -hmm. it's basically a magical, um, a little princess or, yeah. or like, um, it is very Howl's Moving Castle, and it's just, it's perfect. It's very hard, I think, to hit nostalgia without it coming off kind of like yeah. um, treacly and oversweet and a little bit like obvious or something, but I just think it's perfect. <laughs> okay. Well, we shall point people towards those books when they, you know, as they come out. And obviously, we may find ourselves back at some point to talk about Starling House in the future. <laughs> but, you know, for, for the moment... Uh, I hope that you and your family have a wonderful holiday season. And thank you so much for joining us this morning, Alex Harrow. Thank you so much. It's been great.